How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that I'm not welcoming as church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in your ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church's concern is being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today, our special guest is Jared Bias. Jared is co-host of the incredibly popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People. He is the co-author of the book, Genesis for Normal People, and his most recent book, Love Matters More, which we'll be talking about at length. As a former teaching pastor and professor of philosophy and biblical studies, Jared speaks regularly on the Bible, truth, creativity, wisdom, and the Christian faith. He and his wife, Sarah, live outside of Philadelphia, but even more specifically on the outskirts of Philadelphia, I just learned, with their four children, Augustine, Tove, how do you say that your daughter's name, Elthea? Alethea. Alethea. Alethea and Exodus. Is he a Bible guy or what? I love it. And if you want to, we'll, we'll, I'll share more of this at the end, but if you want to connect with Jared immediately and see all the different things he has going on, you can go to jaredbias.com. Jared, thank you so much for being with me and for being with the people of the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I, I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, those, your kids' names, those are epic. Did you know, even before having kids, you're like, when we do this, we're going to have some like good names. No, no. I mean, in, in a certain way, just because I'm, I'm hyper analytical and overthink everything. So it did take multiple hours. You know, it just felt like such a weighty decision to give someone a name. So yeah, it took lots of conversations over long periods of time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, my, my wife and I have two. We have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and our daughter's name is Michaela Brave and our son's name is True. Yeah. And here's, here's two funny things about my son's name, True. My wife and I met when we were 16. And by the time we were like 18 and we were like getting ready to move to Hawaii from Los Angeles to go to school together, there's old notes from my wife and I where we, she drew a picture of like me and her and two kids, a boy and a girl, and, and it said True and Michaela. So I'm, I'm 36 now, so 18 years ago. When I was 18, I said, if I ever have a son, I'm going to name him True. Wow. And I've like only once for the longest time saw somebody with the name and there's this famous street artist from New York that comes out to Hawaii a lot and does murals around here. And his daughter's name is true. Um, but then I, with, like within a year of right before we had our kid, one of the Kardashian sisters named their daughter true. And I'm a person like I can let go and practice acceptance and forgive like almost immediately that one surprisingly took more time than normal for me to come to terms with that because just the thought of my of people being like oh like like chloe uh -huh. I'm like babe can we do this still like do we have, am i prepared for that so love the names man <laughs> let's start with the podcast the bible for normal people awesome name great i mean just uh, so many people 
listening in so many people loving you know not only the guests that you and pete have on but you guys and what you're saying and what you're doing and how you're inviting people to a more faithful way of following jesus and also specifically in what that means for our relationship with the bible and how that changes and evolves and grows and deepens and gets better even even if other people can't always see that earlier on what was the conversation that led to the title like, what does that podcast name, I would really love for people to hear this. What does the podcast name capture for like your, your guys' desires for people, but also tapping into like, I think the struggles for people and their desire to stay in the Bible and keep going. Yeah, it's a great question. So historically, it came from a book that Pete and I co-wrote back in 2012. So it's been almost 10 years ago now called Genesis for Normal People. Okay. Yeah, and, and so it came from really a lot of conversations that Pete and I had over the years back when we first met. I, you know, I've known Pete for over 15 years now. And he clearly has a passion for writing to an everyday audience. How do we capture biblical spiritual truths and then translate that for everyday people. And the same has been true for me. My whole life is about taking complicated things. I taught philosophy to 18 year olds. So it's taking complicated things and breaking them down. And so that was an easy thing for both of us to very much align on. And it came from, you know, I can speak from my perspective, growing up in a, a rural Texas town where there was a bookstore on every corner, a Christian bookstore, and you got access to the same. It's like there were probably 500 books that all kind of said the same thing, and it came from mm. the same perspective and the same vantage point. And then I go to seminary, and the, the roof just gets blown off. In and, terms and where of, was that? I don't think I know where you went to grad school. Yeah, I went to Westminster, which is how I met Pete. He was teaching gotcha. at Westminster. And I start getting introduced to Jewish writers and just deep uh, – you know, theological reflections that I had just never heard ever. Mm. And my question was, this is so rich and so good. Why, why is this not in the Christian bookstore? Why is this not accessible to everyday people? Yeah. I mean, there's so much that can be unpacked and have real consequence for our spiritual lives. Where is that in, in these bookstores? And of course, it's politics and it, you know, it's certain perspectives were highlighted and others not. And so that's what came from that is our mission to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. Mm. That's what we are driven by, I think, personally. And so it was easy for the Bible for Normal People to be that as well. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. Yeah, it's such, it is a fascinating thing when you're in grad school and you're part of such you know, invigorating, exciting, like terrifying at times, but these amazing conversations. And it is, it is a great challenge when you're playing like the, the, the pastor, the teacher, the writer, you have this unique translative role of there's probably all these primary sources most people won't read that's not a judgment they're just not that's a funny thing about right. reading theology and philosophy you're like nobody cares about like about this book but they care about what is being said here because it matters to the deepest parts of what it means to be human and even before we go on i think for you personally but also for pete to go from a professor I'm writing on an academic level, maybe doing commentaries to make a conscious move on his end and also with your guys' partnership into we're taking this just as seriously. But we also know the real work is how do you translate that into concrete love, care, and serve for every day, every day, everybody who's doing this. And you guys do such a great job of that, man. You guys really do. Thank you. Let's let's uh 
going back to Genesis 2012, you write a book, it's called Genesis for Normal People. Always fun to talk about Genesis. Why that book specifically? How does a book like Genesis for you guys, how does that book, Genesis for Normal People, have something important to say and contribute to people's real spiritual journey, real life in Christ with as they're growing and changing and evolving, et cetera? Well, I think it created space for people to have doubts and questions. Just a lot of the everyday people that we interacted with, a lot of their questions came from Genesis. It came mm, from clashes with science and history. The things they were learning in, in school weren't mapping onto the things they were taught about how the Bible, what the Bible is and how it works. So those are the two questions we grapple with constantly at the Bible for Normal People. And Genesis is just ground zero for some of those questions. What is the Bible and what do we do with it? And so when you're confronted with these uh, theories and facts and processes uh, around evolution or geology or the age of the earth, it, it immediately starts to confront maybe some perspectives that were inherited from your tradition that you grew up with. So it's helping people to wrestle with those. And I think overall, what you know, interestingly enough, there's a story in, in Genesis chapter 32 where Jacob wrestles with God and gets his name changed to Israel, one who struggles with God. And so that's sort of paradigmatic or symbolic of not only Israel's relationship with God overall, but I think a lot of people today, their relationship with God to be able to break free from, we always submit God is God, we aren't, and we get these uh, these very authoritarian verses sort of thrown at us to keep us in our place. And we can't have questions because God's beyond that. And God's going to get mad at you. If you question God, it's so thoroughly unbiblical. And to see that the entire nation of Israel is born out of a struggle with God, I think is very relevant. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's fascinating to think how much of that book can be has become and can be a barrier towards people knowing God deeper, following Jesus further down the path. So, yeah, I mean, this even being able to take things apart to clear the way for people through that, we are like, look, the con there is a way to relate to this in a way that allows you to keep growing and stay involved and stay with people and do that. So, yeah, that's a. That's so good. So that wrestling story, Jacob wrestles with God. What is a story where in your own evolving, you know, patterns of, you know, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, kind of a faith, what is a, a story of your own wrestling, whether it's you're going to seminary, it's theological or it's social or it's new people you're meeting. What is a moment like that where you feel like I'm really wrestling with the Bible and wrestling with God, but I've came away with more of a limp, but also seemingly more whole and more committed to the journey than ever? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a good question. A few things come to mind. I think one passage that comes to mind, of course, is always Jonah for me. Jonah is always like my go-to because I think Jonah exhibits a lot of the things that were really, again, for me, it was the, uh, it was a catalyst story 
to realize what I was missing out on if I only had a very narrow picture of what the Bible is and what it could do. You know, for me, Jonah growing up was all about, can God have a physically have a fish swallow a man and can that man survive for three days? Because all that matters is that we sort of confront these scientific people who are anti-Christian and mm. anti-God who are saying that God can't do these things. And then we miss the richness of the text mm. and how it, it is there not just to lay down the historical or scientific facts, but to be an engine for us to be in relationship with this God for us to be in relationship with each other. It's a, it's a motivating factor for existing in the world. And I think of uh, a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, who says, mm -hmm. you know, Christianity was never meant to be understood. It was meant to be existed in. Mm -hmm. And I always appreciated that mm -hmm. for, as I read, as I read Jonah. I think the other one for me is just those difficult narratives of uh, genocide. And mm -hmm. how do we, how do we manage uh, a violent God who seems to condone because there isn't really a good answer to that question with certain assumptions about what the Bible is and what we do with it. So I kept mm. coming back to that and say, yeah, this isn't one that we can really skirt around without addressing those fundamental questions. Yeah. Yeah. That Jonah story is funny. I was recently on a, on a, on a phone call with my friend from California and, you know, just like with friends on we're joking, talking about whatever, just, it's just absurdism at this point in our conversation. And I was talking about like the parting of the Red Sea and the Jonah story. And I'm like, so, cause I was right by the water. Cause I live like right by the water. I'm like, so you're telling me the water, right? And so I'm like saying up on both sides. And as we were saying that he was telling me that he thinks that it's, that uh, somebody literally being swallowed by a fish is like more of a miracle or is even harder or crazier than wall essentially having like a mind of its own where it can do that or whatever. And then like a couple weeks later, I was at a park with my kids and there was like a big hippo with an open mouth and my kids were in the mouth. And I, I took a, I took a, like a boomerang. I was going to send to him back, dude, you got me your proof. This is pretty difficult <laughs> right here. But yeah. Those, mm -hmm. I think those stories and, you know, the wrestling with things like a Jonah story where it's like the point is to argue whether it happened like this or that, those things, it isn't just one thing, right? Those things represent a larger, it's not just about Jonah, it's well, what does that mean for the Bible as a whole, right? The kind of the, the particular is always connected to the larger, this always has implications for a bigger picture relationship with the scriptures or whatever. Right. Um, well, if yeah, I can, ahead. I mean, I think, I think that points to this larger challenge that we face, which is what does the Bible actually say about mm. these things? And when do, does our pre-commitments or our own ideologies get in the way of seeing what the Bible actually is? So I was, just because you said the parting of the Red Sea, you know, in Exodus 14, the text actually tells us that it's a strong east wind that blows the parting of the Red Sea and creates mm. the, It says in there, there's a natural phenomenon, the strong east wind. But when I remember as a kid bringing that up, and I was sort of uh, maligned as a, as a naturalist who was just trying to take the miracles out of the Bible. I'm like, mm. it literally says it right there. It says it in Exodus 14 that it wasn't like, if you were there that day, you wouldn't see God's hand reach down in some 
miraculous or supernatural way and pull these two sides of the ocean apart. It says a strong east wind came and parted the sea. Mm. And so that just for me is a great example of how when we have these preconceived ideas of what the Bible has to be for us, it can actually get in the way and distort what's just there if we read it carefully. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Even, even that alone, people hearing those type of things or even some of the information about like the dew and the manna and the quail, you know, where you're like, okay, well there's, there's, there's this and there's that and how those little disruptions, you know, what it can do to a person's faith and why those, why books like Genesis for normal people and the podcast are so critical because sometimes people start to have this deep thing where they're like, I can't, with integrity, I have to say no to some of the ways I've been taught, but there isn't the clear yes. And that in between, between usually that happens, we're more clear in what we say no, but the yes takes longer to emerge and to have faith, to be connected, to remain in union, to stay connected to a community in that middle spaces. I think where a lot of people are just tough, you know, because there are very few, there's more and more now, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, the guides of that middle space were pretty rare. You know? Yeah, that's so, well said. Yeah. Yeah. So the newest book, Love Matters More. Here's my first question. Love Matters More Than What? What, are, what is that title getting at? What is the sort of engine within, you know, what I think is a great title and sort of the heart of the book? Well, it really has two meanings that are more like concentric circles. So the the more specific answer to that question is it matters more than being right. Mm. That's the the heart of the of the book. It matters more than being right. Mm. You could extrapolate that to say it, it really matters more than the truth, to be honest. Mm. Um, but the furthest piece of that, as I read Jesus and uh, the New Testament, it matters more than everything. I mean, that's the broader answer. Is it, if we're talking about the the center of faith, as you know, the Christian faith, love matters more than anything. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> when we think about love mattering more than being right, like you've so you've you've pastored like in a local congregation before, right? And how long did you do that for? Uh, it would have been within two congregations, close to a decade. Okay, so you've had a ton of experience leading, pastoring in different roles. When we think about the idea of love mattering more, love matters more than being right. Let's zoom out even more, right? Love matters more than anything because that is sort of the essential structure. That is the movement. It's everything. I want to talk about pastoring because I think about these questions. You know, say, for example, we're in our church, right? We're talking about belonging before you believe. We're saying people can be exactly where they are. People can be in process, right? You're freeing people up to grow and be at their own pace and in their own way, right? And when you kind of not just say that, but I think really create an, an environment that allows that, that can make some people uncomfortable. And some of the questions I've gotten before, some of the questions people might get is like, well, what do you do if they've been in church for two years and they still haven't like made a decision for G or for this? Or what if you invite them further, but they keep returning to the old thing, whatever they're caught up in, whatever they're sort of held captive by. And I almost get the sense of people are like, when do you give them an ultimatum? When, and which, which in large part, when you say love matters more than being right. It's like, when do you give them an ultimatum where, 
you have to believe the right things. You essentially have to be more right or else we cannot love, embrace, accept, and include you in the wholehearted way that we have been doing for however many years. And I ask this question, and this is true when you think about when using the phrase concentric circles, this is true for interpersonal relationships. This is true for pastoring a community. This is true at every level. With all that said, why do pastors or religious leaders have such a hard time letting people be? Because you know, you are through teaching, through shaping, through whatever you're doing, you are inviting, you are beckoning, you are giving people a glimpse. And you're also saying, not only am I going to speak those possibilities into existence, but I will also walk with you towards that if you allow me. That's the humbling thing about being a pastor. It's like, I'm divesting myself of power and I'm allowing you to determine sort of in large part, the nature of our relationship, right? It's kind of, it's a maddening thing for people. I'm like, if you invite and call them, but they don't go, they stay the same. They say something so silly. You're like, have you ever listened to what I've said? And then a pastor's frustrated, wants to give people an ultimatum, wants to shame them, wants to somehow coalesce like them to do what they want. Why is it so hard? We say love matters more than being right. Why is it so hard to just let people be for, for religious leaders? Well, I think it's a, that's a huge question. Um, I think there's so many different facets to that. And I don't at all, you know, I'm not an expert on this at all, but my observation is a, a few things I would say off the top of my head is, and this may be a little controversial, but I've witnessed again and again, what I would call a projection. Hmm. Um, I, I would actually go further. I won't get into the nerdiness of it, but uh, Nietzsche has this great concept of resentment but he always uses the French word um, because he wants to distinguish from plain old resentment and resentment. That's a projection of things I can't have, but I want. Mm. So I think for a lot of religious leaders, for me, I'll speak for myself. We take things very seriously. Almost we are, we have been ascetics for many years. We've, we've given up things. We've sacrificed things and we did it. Because in the long run, we thought that would be a better life and better off. And now you're telling me I didn't have to do all that. You're telling me I can just do less than that and still be included. Mm. Like that doesn't feel good. Mm. And so, you know, we call people to these higher levels of deprivation or prohibition mm. because we did it. And it doesn't seem fair that other people don't have to. Mm. I don't think a lot of religious leaders would maybe acknowledge that or admit to that, but I see it quite a bit. So for everybody listening in, a part of or the main heart of what Jerry was saying was a pastor would be frustrated, upset, even resentful towards how some parishioners are being because deep down they know they want to be doing it too, but they can't because they're the pastor. <laughs> and they're, yeah, they need to it. call you away from that because they're resenting the fact that you're still doing it and they want to. <laughs> yeah, so you can't no, have your so cake good. and eat it too. I, I'm, with, I'm with you, man. That's yeah. so good. It's like you can choose. You can either belong or you can do that because that's what I felt like I had to do. I had to choose. Mm-hmm. I can't belong and get all the benefits of community and love and acceptance and behave in this way, right? Um, and so I think there's, there's part of that. I also think it's challenging when your identity is based on belief. And I don't mean that just as an individual identity, but as a congregation or a church. If your 
If your identity is based on what we believe, then to have someone who doesn't believe the same things be more and more a center of that community threatens the very identity of who you are. Mm. And that's a challenge. So, that's so good. the question is, you know, and that's a natural consequence of the system, meaning I don't hold anyone at fault for that. If your identity is belief, then naturally people who don't believe that will be a threat to your identity. That's just mm-hmm. a, almost a, by definition, true. It doesn't have to do with ego, personality. It just has to do with how you set the system up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the system is perfectly designed to accomplish what it's designed for. And so, yeah, that, that, so that, that would raise the larger question of what does it mean to be Christian? Mm-hmm. Where is our identity? And that might then play out in how we treat people who believe differently than we do. Mm, yeah, those are such great answers. The the psychoanalyzing of the religious leaders and the resentment. And, you know, so often I think on on media, there's this funny story. Well, one time my wife and I out here in Honolulu, we were going to Costco. We ran into an old friend we hadn't seen for years. And she was holding up a piece of paper. And the piece of paper was blocking her face right? She was intentionally holding up to block her face. And I forget if she had like shingles, she had something she didn't want us to see, right? Which understandable, I could care less. But the piece of paper she was holding up was for like breast augmentation surgery. So it was like, you know, note she got on it. And I thought to myself, when I walked in, what a fascinating thing that the very thing that she's using to cover up what she consciously doesn't want us to see, she's actually, without realizing it, exposing something else she really doesn't want us to probably know or see. And a lot of times I think about that story and I think about unconscious drives and conscious thoughts and what people have on Instagram and media and pastors. I'm like, the very thing you're consciously doing to try to avoid, cover up or overcompensate, you know, for this, to me, reveals something much deeper. It's like in the very act of protecting yourself, so much of that bitterness, the resentment, the jealousy, your real desires coming out, what you're going against so hard is probably a reflection of your own internal conflicts, et cetera. I'm like, in the very act of trying to cover up, you're actually revealing so much. And when you say it, I'm like, I think for pastors, that's so on point how it's difficult to let people be because deep down, perhaps there's just more happening there. So, yeah, yeah, that's, well, you know, I learned a long time ago that uh, anytime someone uh, ruffles my feathers or gets me emotionally reactive, I first have to take my own inventory Mm -hmm. and say, what is it about me that's causing this reaction? Because when I look around at everyone else, not everyone else is up in arms about it. So there's something else going on that's not universally true, but just true about me. Absolutely. That's so good. Like, I literally talked to a friend up until like the minute when you, when you came in, in, the, in the chat and I, I clicked on and I told them this thing that I've, you know, say in different contexts, I'm like, it hurts, something hurts. I'm like, it hurts because it's painful, but it bothers you because you can't accept it. So it's like That's what good. you're saying, the bothering, mm-hmm. the, why is it rubbing you when I could care less, you know, or there's other things I'm like, why is this sticking to me more when Jared's like, I didn't even cross my mind. Yep. I, it's okay. They did that. It's maybe not cool, but it doesn't bother me. That bothering is always the invitation of the spiritual journey. It's like, there's something here for you to name, accept and let go of if you allow it to. So yeah, I appreciate, yeah. I think you know, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think that, 
self-awareness, that commitment to emotional health, the awareness of how the shadow works is becoming so much more prevalent and woven into the lives of so many Christian leaders. And that to me that in the midst of everyone's got issues with everything and that's fine, but like there's so many hopeful things where pastors, leaders are really are committed to the depths of their own journey instead of just like building something and using their willpower to do it. You know? So yeah, that's well said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You say, there's a great, I'm going to get to that after. There's this quote that you'll use a few times to kind of make a point or draw some of the, into the depth of the book. You know, people just, they just speaking the truth in love. That's what we do as Christians, Jared, we speak the truth in love. And while there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with this phrase in and of itself, how does this phrase, this idea of speaking the truth in love for people in communities, for religious people, for Christian people, how can it become weaponized or used in a way that's damaging for people? Like there's more going on there. Well, it's when there is a lack of love in the truth telling. <laughs> and, and even right. to the point that it's even more insidious than that, because in my tradition, there wasn't even a tension between speaking the truth and love we came to just recognize speaking the truth is love. Mm. It doesn't really matter how I treat you or what kind of relationship we have. Me, just by me telling you the truth of what, how you're getting something wrong, that in itself is an act of love. And so we've justified and rationalized all manner of behavior, a, approach, projection, reaction by saying, it doesn't matter if I'm speaking the truth, that's loving. And if you don't receive it as loving, that's on you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You learn, you can, you, hopefully people can learn very quickly in a long-term relationship that it's not just what you say, but the how, and the, and that's what, you know, you learn over time. It's oh, even in relationships, you know, people respond more to the energy with which you say something than the actual content. So I think the speaking the truth and love when the, the issue is very clear, like you can, it's just, you're not saying it with enough love. It's, the atmosphere you're creating through the actual like energy and the resonance of that with a person, you're like, the tone is shaming. Your facial expression is like disgusted. And yet you, the, you, the, the content, there might be some truth there. I mean, there's no denying that, right. but the overall, the, the, the desire to speak the truth doesn't negate what it means to have a loving, embracing and accepting kind of overall presence as a whole. Well, and, um, and you know, even to break that down even further, I think of two things. Speaking the truth in love usually means, do I want you to, when I'm trying to speak the truth in love, the question is, do I want you to win? Mm -hmm. And have I proven that to you? Mm -hmm. Like, do I want you to succeed so in life? And have I proven it through my actions wow. that that's what I want for you? I love that. Whenever we have those in place, then that truth telling really can be received in love. Yeah, that's, if you're a leader, if you have a partner, take notes on what, what Jared just said. That is so huge. Do through the history of our relationship and the presence right now, even with the truth I'm saying, even if it's challenging, is there clearly like, I want you to win. This is for you. This is for us. This is for everything. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no of my inner antagonism and the need to be right or to win. Right. That's, that's so good. Um. You say in your book, the Christian culture has a, quote, addiction to truth. 
right? I love it. That, that short phrase captures so much. If I think the heart of the book, and I think of the, some of the light that allows us to move forward better as Christians, as people in the church. Why is it easier to be dedicated to gaining knowledge in the cognitive sense, right? I believe these right things. Why is it so much easier to do that than it is learning to love and be loved? Like what does love require that being right or gaining knowledge doesn't? I think there's two things. And the first, the easy answer is vulnerability. Mm. So now if knowledge is power, then by me knowing more, I can be less vulnerable, not wow. appear as weak. And so sure, I'm going to take that shortcut anytime. Uh, and, and especially if I can pass off my knowledge as loving. Mm. So that's even better. So I think that vulnerability piece is, is really key. But I think secondly, anyone who's been in a position where you're talking about change, it's difficult. Changing people's behavior is very difficult. Mm. Changing your mind about things, that can be pretty easy. Just present me with one piece of evidence from someone I trust, switch it, done, good. But to actually change how my habits are, my viewpoint, my perspective, my behavior, how I show up in social settings, how I show up with my family and my mm. friends, that's, that's hard, grinded out, daily practice work. Mm. And I think that's why it's easier to emphasize and talk about what we know versus behavior. I think thirdly, in a context of churches, accountability is so much easier if I can just ask you a few simple questions about what you believe mm. than having to talk about how you behave. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the easy system to implement in terms of church governance or accountability or whatever we want to talk about, belonging. It's so much easier to sit in a membership class and not have deep relationships and uncomfortable conversations about how we're showing up to our neighbors. It's a lot easier just to have a membership class where we say, here's our nine points, our faith statement. Do you believe that too? Great. Now we can just move on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I and another pastor in our church, oftentimes, you know, we talk about the unquantifiability. I don't even know if that's a word, but how the things that matter, the growth of people, the real life that's happening, you can't, measure it or quantify it or see it in the same way you can with those other simple metrics of do they believe this and they got baptized boom and now we're moving forward now i can write back to my donors and be like look what's happening here come on baby 38 people never seen them again but we got them and that is i think you know when even moving into the vulnerability of love and even when we talk about leading and pastoring in those ways is you're, like you said, pastors are taking what they do seriously. And that's a good thing. I think you can take it seriously and still be light. That's a challenge. That's more of a challenge, but to take it seriously is important. You're talking about, we want people to thrive. We want people to know the power of their own voice. We want people to know what it means to feel, to, to belong, to be accepted, et cetera. But there is a certain madness to what we're doing is an offering and you can't always measure, <clears throat> quantify, or make sense of where a person's doing it. And if, if we don't come to terms with th this is an offering and then I have to let go of it, yes, pastors will be frustrated, agitated, irritated, resentful, because this person does not appear to be bearing the fruit I think they should be based on the amount of energy I've quote unquote invested into them. Like this, that's real, you know, when, 
when pastors are struggling with all that. And I think the deeper work of moving from just the knowledge and head, we can quantify that to like this deeper, that person opened up for the first time in their life to that group of people. I can't write any letters to supporters for that, you know, but we know that's actually, that's, it's a more of a mysterious, harder to measure fruit, but those are where the real work is. Um, yeah. There's a couple of things I want to respond to on that. It's, it's a, it's an interesting tension to be a person who takes the life of the mind seriously. Like you're clearly a person who values intellect, knows the, the gift of, you know, rigorous critical thinking, but at the same time, like with what you acknowledge, people can use thought and knowledge and intellect as a defense mechanism against vulnerability and love. That's just an interesting tension. You're like, I value it, but it's, I'm also seeing the limitations of it. And I do it too. I value it, but you can like, how do you spot in people or what do you do with that tension for others when you kind of know like this is good, but also perhaps we should shift from talking about this to like, what's like, what's happening over here. Cause this can easily like, have you pastoring in your friendships kind of seen that and how do you respond and what do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, I think on the personal side, uh, on the personal side, the experiences, I hurt people. Mm. So me knowing things didn't actually lead to what I wanted, which mm. was good relationships where I was loving and kind and gracious. Knowing more didn't always mean I did that. I actually hurt people because what I knew I thought they needed to know. And it was always out of a good motivation. Well, that's partly out of a good motivation. It was all mixed with my own desire to be right. But that, that was my, my personal realization is, well, I'm hurting people. And that's not, that's mm -hmm. not what it's working for. The second thing that came to mind was, interestingly enough, it was Malcolm Gladwell. And now I can't even remember which book it was. But basically, I think it might be Outliers, where he talks about the smartest people aren't always the most successful people. Mm. Like the smartest people cognitively, intellectually don't always end up being the most successful in a lot of ways on certain scales. They're kind of duds. Like they don't, it's because they don't know how to relate to people. They don't know how to connect to people. They don't. We talk about emotional awareness, emotional health, all of these things play into it. And so those two things combined for me were like, okay, there's something more here where what I, I, I the, the truth I had to learn for myself, which I don't know how other people would phrase this, is that knowing better is good, but it doesn't make me better. Mm. It doesn't make me a better person. Mm. But we're set up in such a way that the systems like school, K through 12, college, I was lauded and applauded and I was treated as though I were better because I could spit facts back better than anyone else. So the system was sort of privileging this idea that the smarter you are, and I, I think I address this in the book where we talk about education and the, all the emphasis on making people smarter and smarter as though that's going to bring about some utopia in our country and not recognizing that we're missing like a lot of valuable things that we need to be cultivating in people besides so just good. being smart. Absolutely. Yeah. So mom, if you're listening in that 1.2 I got in high school was a conscious form of resistance to a system that was saying my ability to regurgitate facts back defined me. So just, I was so far ahead of the curve. Back. You were, I mean, you were just living like <laughs> Jesus. Just uh, Even before I was just like, I know what I'm doing here. All right. This D is more than just a letter. This is me. This is agency. This is me asserting myself. This is me seeing through the matrix, mom. You'll get it in 15 years. Yeah. I just, 
before a couple of questions, I'm sure like along the way, the past, let's see, I'm 30, like 10 to 13 years, you've probably read like some Peter Rollins at some point, you know? And this is what's so interesting now with what we're talking about and some of the broader kind of conversations that are happening, people writing books. I'm like, his work is so much more practical and pastoral than people realized at the time because they're, you know, he's at the time it's like, well, it's like, how do you get a handle on what he's saying exactly? But when you get into it, he's saying so much of the theoretical believer, practical unbeliever. I mean, this is, this is, you know, he's probably writing this 2007 ish, you know, eight ish or whatever. So I'm like that ability to dismantle and, and just sort of bring attention to what we believe, what we have, you know, sort of the cognitive order we have, does not translate into concrete love in the Christ-like way and what your book is showing us is actually the point, you know, and all of his parables and everything he's written was so much of clarifying that, you know, earlier on for folks. That's why even now, like pastoring, I'm like, so much of his work is so practical. When you, like, when you, when you get into it and you know, it's so practical, his parables are so like, I've, you know, used, most of them are a ton of them like in teachings and stuff. Cause they're just, they capture so much of the heart of, you know, what you're saying so well, you know, that love matters more even than being right. And what that means of not just believing in Jesus, but actually extrapolating or embodying a Christ-like way of being in the world, you know? And I think that distinction is becoming more and more clear for people, which is such a good thing. Yeah. I appreciate that. I take that as a compliment because I used to joke and say, I'm so jealous of if, if I had been born in Ireland, I would only have hoped to become a Peter Rollins. Like he, uh, just because of, you know, growing up and doing philosophy and he just melds those worlds so well. And, uh, and just, if I had that accent, you know, maybe a different lifetime, maybe I would have been able to do the same. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I will like joke around with people where like, you know, when there's like bands or, you know, groups, you're like, man, I was listening to Childish Gambino, like when people didn't even, when he was on Community and people didn't even know who he was or before any of his albums or like whatever people listen to. And for me, I say it about Peter Rollins. I was like, I went to what I think was the first like speaking tour he ever did in the States in 2000. And it was either the end of 2008 or beginning of 2009, like right when How to Not to Speak of God came out. And yeah. it was at this little purple at, Adventist church in Hollywood and there's barely anybody there. The event was called beyond evangelism. And now I look back, I'm like, that was like you, somebody at like a Wu Tang show when there was like 20 people in like 92. So he, you know, even him and Wu Tang, I was there. I've, I've, I've known. Nice. So that's yeah. my, uh, that's awesome. and now I'm like, I don't read him anymore. Cause I mean, I was, I can't, now that everyone knows him, I can't. Like, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think with what you're saying, and I, I would love for you to speak to this, it's definitely something I've seen in my own journey, you know, pastoring and leading people is the possibility of how a person can be, can have this interesting moment in their life where they're less certain of their beliefs, but more alive in Christ or a person's less certain of their beliefs about God, but more engaged in life in a Christ-like way, working for justice in their creative work or loving the world. Like, do you see this? And if so, how can you make sense for people of like how that's a thing? I think of it in terms of, you know, my relationship with my wife and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here. It doesn't matter. She's not going to listen to it, but uh, you know, 
she started to he just by the way i don't know if you caught that but jared just subtly dissed me so hard he said don't worry my wife's gonna listen she would never listen to this podcast kevin so therefore don't even edit it out i had to say it i had to say it because you know what my wife doesn't listen to my podcast either so you know i have to take the jabs where i can get them anyway so she uh you know over the years has changed a lot in the last Mm. decade or something. I mean, she was on our podcast not too long ago and said, you know, she doesn't identify as a Christian anymore. She changed a lot. And and she started having a voice and started really understanding who she is and starting having her own belief system, not just what was given to her. And she started not being afraid of that. And what it helped me to realize is that, you know, this relationship, it actually got more interesting to me. It got more exciting to me because it added this level of mystery mystery and unknown and understanding that we're always in process. We're always in the process of becoming, becoming something new. We're always changing, not always as radical as my wife or other people who go through these deep faith shifts overnight or have these radical conversion or deconversion processes, but we're always shifting and always becoming something different than, than what we are now. And for me, it's, it's allowing our relationship with God and with Jesus to be that, to say there's always a remainder. There's always that thing that's out there. I think I say in the book that there's enough light to guide us, but not enough to think we have them all figured out. Mm, and so that is how we're built to be engaged and enticed and excited and interested. Sure, we have to exchange for that level of relationship, no longer having a sense of certainty. Mm-hmm. There's a little, there's some uncertainty. There's some instability. You know, what happens if my wife changes in such a way that she doesn't love me anymore? Mm. What, I don't, I, but I can't control that. Yeah. Um, but within that, there's also all these positives. And so I think that's, it's, it's, it's awakening to the vibrancy of what it means to actually be in a relationship, not to call it a relationship and be just talking about the unmoved mover. Uh, you know, this Aristotelian thing out there that's not dynamic and not relational. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting how the some of the deeper tension and the different things we're talking about truly is that deep, deep desire for control. You know, yes. if I believe correctly and my belief system works, and as long as I can hold on to it, then I, it's funny, as long as the more certain I am about God, the less I actually need God, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. the moment that grip starts to be loosened, the moment the certainty starts to crumble, the moment your beliefs while not being, not necessarily being obliterated, but at least are relativized or brought into question or criticized and sort of analyzed and rethought and reimagined. Now, my, your faith has the opportunity to move from my faith without realizing it was actually my theology of God towards my faith being an actual dynamic knowing, and even more importantly, being known by God. You know, this is when you get to the vulnerability, to the love, to the experience, to the, the deep being known. These are all things that have to happen in a place of vulnerability where we aren't in control. It's such a fascinating thing how like, and you, I'm sure you, you know, like this is something you just recognize and pay attention to, but you're like the people who are the most certain are always the most insecure. 
you are only white knuckling and holding on to something if you believe if you let go you're going to die or not be safe and that where it's like the even the idea of falling into love where it's a it's not a holding on it's a falling you know it's not a getting it all in order it's a releasing and a trusting it's not me holding on it's me falling into that abyss and discovering that we're actually being held. Like it's such a different journey, but the loss of certainty for some people, which means faith is over actually opens up kind of like the journey to begin in a more interesting kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. The way you say that is, you know, my greatest surprise in writing the book is learning a lot more about control Mm. because love and control have to be talked about together. Mm. And I think about that in terms of, parent, I mean, the, the simplistic way, overly simplistic way I thought of it is we've never really learned how to love adults. Mm. We, we love adults the same way we love our kids, which is really inappropriate. Like <laughs> it's very appropriate for my love and my control to be intertwined when my kid's two. It's way less appropriate when they're 10, even less when they're 16 and not at all appropriate when they're 19, 20, mm. 21. Mm. Like they we have to let adults be adults, which it reminded me of uh, that your conversation a minute ago about pastors. I invested all this time and you're not doing what I wanted you to do with that investment. Well, they're adults. Why would you expect <laughs> you get to control that? Um, so yeah, I just, this, that was my, my most surprising revelation was how much I experience love as control and I think it comes from us not evolving and developing in our relationships from kids because that's often the argument I get is like, well, God, you know, God controls us. Like God treats us this way or God, whatever it is. Basically, it's like, well, God treats us as children. And so we, I'm like, but, but none of us are children. I don't understand why we keep using this as an analogy. Yeah. None of us are children. We're adults mm. who can make our own choices and mm. find it loving when people respect our autonomy and our ability to make our own choices. Um, so, yeah, I just, I yeah. learned a lot about that relationship between control and love. Yeah. And, and, and in the other side of that tension is one, as people were learning what it means to love and liberate people at the same time, you know, that that's right. when you talk about loving adults, right? right? So we have to learn how to love and liberate people to be, do, say whatever the hell, because they don't, they're them, you know? Right. Right. But, and that, that's always a challenge to learn how to do that. And also the other side of that, what I have always find so interesting is Oftentimes, I think the more sort of, you know, the closer in your concentric circles of life, the relationships are, this more invested. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, other people can also receive your emotional sobriety, your differentiation, your lack of a need to control them as you're not really loving them. Mm-hmm. Because why would you give me the space to do that? Why wouldn't you go on the emotional roller coaster with me when I want to do this? When I'm like, this is my way of giving myself to you freely. And what you do with that is like, what is, sometimes I just ask people like, what does that have to do with you? Like to a pastor, like, what is that? What is that person going back to that toxic? Like it sucks. And I feel for them because it's bad for them. But like when I'm at home at night, like that ain't got nothing to do with me. And when I'm chilling, you know what I mean? Like that level. And, and I honestly think like, 
I just saw a friend of mine named Dan White Jr. You know, he mm-hmm. he wrote a yeah, he does like V three stuff and yep. good friend of he's starting a retreat center. He moved to Puerto Rico. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah. He moved he moved to Puerto Rico, Caneo. He's starting a retreat center for like, you know, pastors who have burned out. My wife's on the board of that with him and some other people. Yeah. My wife's an MFT. She has a private practice out here and she's a pastor too. And I just saw yesterday or the day before, he wrote on Twitter like 28 of my friends who are pastors like left this year. Right. And it has like 500 comments on it in a day, you know, like just everyone just being like, it's, you know, just, yep. you know, this the hard part that we all know about pastoring. Um, but I think while I acknowledge all the challenges of pastoring, I'm like so much of the tension, the stress, the weight people are carrying is not just pastoring in and of itself. It's how we're pastoring and how we carry it. If I'm like, there's a lot of things, pastoring, organizational leadership, I don't do well. I acknowledge all that. You know, it, it is what it is. But I'm like, but letting people be, treating people like adults, surrendering the need to control, and even surrendering, like, I don't know what the hell is going to happen to my church or churches after COVID. If it dies, that's okay. I mean, that's not where we're at. We're actually, you know, we're okay. But we're going to, the old thing definitely has died, and we have to let it be born again. And so much of, where it's not the reality of pain that kills us, it's our resistance to it. <clears throat> and the resistance is my expectations, my need for control. It's that it's the things within us that we're still holding on to. I'm like, so much of what we're talking about is a part of the path for leaders to be able to do what we do without just being crushed and frustrated and resentful, like you said earlier on. So but that takes yeah. a lot of training and practice. You know, that's stuff you learn in counseling where mm-hmm. you, you, you learn what transference is and you learn how to self like differentiate. And mm-hmm. those things are just, we're putting pastors in positions that they're not adequately trained for. It's like, Oh, let me flip through my commentary on Luke to figure out how to handle this. Like that's not going to help right now. Not gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also I think even what you just said speaks to how, the life of the mind where people are trained to be smarter and smarter, but not more whole. So you have a person who can study, teach, spend 30 minutes in your like lab and prepare a teaching or a lecture or whatever. But man, when it comes to when a person you love is making a decision that you see as self-destructive, what it takes to regulate, to be aware of and regulate your own emotions, to offer them support without needing to control them or without enabling them. Like that's, that's a, it's such a different, like what you're saying, training, that's going on, you know, and one that the mind being right doesn't require us to do that, but being loving, like your book says, is that right there that enables yeah. us to. Yeah, most of my, you know, my work is I actually work with families, so I, I would advise mm. family family businesses, um, and so a lot of my examples and a lot of this control and everything comes from some deep experiences with families who just really don't do this well. Um, mm. So yeah, lots of stories as you're talking yeah. just come to mind. So. Yeah. So last question for people who are like Pastor Jared and you're like, I'm not a pastor anymore, but they're like, but Pastor Jared, you know, there's this moment where so many people are walking away from the church, you know, but oftentimes they're, they're walking away from a faith that's too narrow, a God who's too small and a church that's too exclusive for younger people who find themselves wrestling with that, wanting to remain, but struggling to do so. What is your non-pastoral pastoral word for them where they're like i see that and i know it and i'm desiring to 
keep going on this journey of faith with Christ? Like what, what do you say to that? My first thought usually is learn to trust yourself. Mm. So if it, if it's, I really just don't want to pick up my Bible anymore, then don't pick up your Bible anymore. Mm. It, it's okay. Mm. It, it, so we have to give this space to move from, I often say this, that we should on ourselves too much. <laughs> um, so we have to be able to move away from the shoulding to the wanting and that so takes good. space. So when we, when we engage a faith out of obligation, it's very hard to not engage it out of obligation. Mm-hmm. So how do we move from a place of obligation to a place of life-giving desire? There's, there's usually a space in between. Mm-hmm. And so trust that voice that says, I need a break from this and, and have that break. Do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, go find what you need to find. Go to counseling. Go to therapy. Go figure out how to do these things. Mm-hmm. And then you know, once we've been able to flush out some of that toxicity, come at it from a fresh way. And one of the things I found most helpful was like for me specifically, I stopped reading the Bible even as a pastor for a number of years and had to read other people's engagement of the Bible. That's why with the Bible for normal people, we're really passionate about giving people resources, you know, go read Will Gaffney's uh, Womanist Midrash, go read uh, these other Miguel de la Torre's, uh, you know, interpretations of the parables from a, a migrant worker's perspective, like read other people and how they engage the Bible in a way that doesn't feel like it's life death dealing, but life giving. Mm. How did they do it? Mm. Don't worry about your own, you know, baggage for a while, go find a new way. And, uh, and so that would be a few words there. So good. Even, even with all, see that, that love matters more, love matters more than being right. Even after all of the intellectual goodness and everything Jared writes, he still has the love to give that pastoral word for the people that really was, I, I, man, I say that seriously, that was so good. I think for people to hear. So Jared, thank you, man, for coming on so much. Dude, this was so good. So the one, the Bible for normal people podcast, if you have not heard of it, have not listened to it, please do Jared PNs, another great scholar, another person doing great translating work of the Bible and faith for real normal people. So many great guests on there as well. And also Jared's newest book, Love Matters More. You can find it anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all kinds of good places. And uh, yeah, man, I appreciate it so much. This was really, really good. Excited for the people to hear this. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Cool. Thanks.